Okay. So, I'm actually quite excited about tonight's talk. I'm excited about virtually every talk I give, but I'm a little more, I'm 10% more excited about this. Because it actually is um, this, the new frontiers of Buddhist practice, and it's also something that I've been really excited about integrating in my own work and in counseling and my own work in meditation mentoring and also just the stuff that I've been doing a lot of uh, exploration with. So uh, it's going to require use of all of your brain. <laughs> so open up the brain. Let me tinker with it for 35 minutes or so. Um, it might seem heady at points, but keep with it. Uh, if you find yourself tuning out, uh, just try to stay with it. It'll be worth it. Um, so human beings are intended for communication and interaction with other human beings. That's why we have the brains that we have with the massive forehead space devoted to it. We're as intended for connection and interaction as fish are for water, as birds are for flight. The bulk of all of the uh, cortex regions that separate us from all uh, other species except advanced primates are specifically there to aid interconnection. We've got regions that can read faces and read facial expressions. We've got regions that have mirror neurons which can uh, empathize. We've got regions that are based entirely upon being able to read body language, the insula. We've got massive resources and all of them, not to mention the huge resources for language in the left hemisphere. Uh, so we have uh, a lot of um, vast resources at our disposal to communicate. Sadly, much of the time, we only use a fraction of those resources. The left hemisphere is the part of the brain that controls language and symbols. And when we speak to each other, when we think, when we talk, we're largely using that hemisphere. But before we ever learned to use language, when we were infants, we were communicating in an entirely different way. And that was just as valuable and important and life-sustaining as language is for us today. We were communicating using emotions, facial expressions, body language, gestures. As infants, we were reaching out, demonstrating our hunger, our need for attention, our fear, our vulnerability, all through our facial expressions, the way we held our body when we 
the behaviors, the stomping, the, the crying, all of that emotion is registered on the front of the body because it's communication. Emotions are not stuff that bubble up at us inconveniently. They're actually signaling tools to let other people know how we, what our state of being is, whether we are frightened, whether we are confident, whether we are in need, whether we are uh, uh, angry, whatever. The entire range of that communication is controlled by your right hemisphere. And just as much of the right hemisphere is devoted to emotion expression and reading as the left hemisphere is devoted to creating language and understanding language. When we are infants, a huge amount of the subsequent relationships and happiness and self-integration and confidence and romantic and social interactions we will have for the rest of our lives are predicated on this pre-verbal state when we communicate emotionally to those around us. This is called, for those of you aware of it, it's called basic attachment theory. And uh, it's actually been substantiated by reams and reams of neuroscience and clinical research. Basically, what it boils down to is when we are communicating, what we need are a couple of experiences to happen for our signals, the emotions we're transmitting, to be read and for us to feel like we're being understood. We first need someone to witness us, to make eye contact, to let us know that we're being seen. We need a state of tolerance so that when we're upset, frightened, angry, crying, that the caretaker can be with us without scolding, rejecting, turning away, judging, pushing away. Part of tolerance is also individuation. Eventually in life we need to be allowed to have our own interests and authentic behaviors without our parents shunning us or not rewarding us with attention. We need to have a sense of membership, equal membership in a group, i.e. a family or caretaking environment where our presence feels important. But the most essential thing we need of all, even without the rest, the most important thing we need as infants to develop uh, a healthy emotional life ahead of us is empathy. Empathy is that condition when a caretaker or somebody else when we're adults demonstrates that they feel what we're feeling, but that they're okay. So if 
you're an infant and you're frightened. Sympathy is just somebody going through the motions of making a... (laughs) Empathy is visually somebody mirroring that emotion accurately, but at the same time remaining detached or objective enough that they let you know that everything's okay. So the mother might do this in a couple of ways. She might mirror back the infant's fear or vulnerability or hunger with her face or with her body language, but she'll also uh, at times go into a smile or a reaffirming gesture that lets the infant know everything's okay. Your needs will be taken care of. Now, if we get empathy and some of those other states from our caretakers, the great news is that a couple of things will happen. You will develop the ability to emotionally integrate because you'll have confidence that your emotions can be read by other people. You won't conceal, repress, hold back emotions. If you are read and empathized with in infancy, you will be able to um, you'll have what's known as a fully integrated self. The more of your emotions that are tolerated and empathized with, the more you will incorporate those into your personality. You'll own them. You'll be comfortable with your anger. You'll be comfortable with your fear, comfortable with your frustration if you're in an early environment where they're supported. More even important than that, you'd think that would be pretty important, but the entire development of your right hemisphere to regulate emotions is dependent upon empathetic caretaking. The studies show that children who grow up in environments that are abusive or are not empathetic at all, that are narcissistic, um, have severe lack of development in certain crucial regions of the right hemisphere. The cingulate, which guides attention doesn't develop so it can be overridden by fear impulses and flight impulses. Also the orbital frontal region that allows us to smoothly integrate with other people doesn't fully develop. Literally the shape and structure of your right hemisphere is not determined largely by genetics or by biology, it's determined by the nurturing that you experienced. Fortunately, don't fret, I see a lot of like, pale. (laughs) 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 A lot of ideations of I need a drink right now. (laughs) Fortunately, the brain is neuroplastic, and that means it's self-correcting. It can remold itself throughout the entirety of the human life. There's ample demonstrations that show that people who start uh, in 
doing real relational work even in their 50s, my age, 60s, 70s. Any age you can rewire and develop uh, the ability to emotionally integrate and express and feel comfortable. Now, the problem is that if you don't get any of these needs met, if you receive painful rejection, shaming, uh, then you become what's known as increasingly avoidant. People who grow up in narcissistic parents generally become what's known as avoidant. They don't understand the need for deep, intimate human relationships because they didn't get it as a child. So they're suspicious. On the other hand, if you did get it, but only when you performed in certain ways, your parents were demanding and said, well, you get love if you're smart or funny or athletic or confident or masculine or feminine or whatever, then we become what's known as insecure. Children, infants who are in insecure relationships, they don't confidently move out and integrate with other infants. They stick around with their parents because they are insecure. They don't believe that they'll get their needs met. They'll be protected if they venture out. On the other hand, the avoidant ones don't even ever bother to deal with the other children or their parents. They just sit there and play with the toys and don't socialize very much at all. They grow up to be very self-sufficient. Secure babies grow up to be, or wind up the ones crawling out and exploring because they know a caretaker has their back. Someone's protecting them. So, uh, and finally, the worst case scenario is the infant that's been abused um, verbally or completely uh, frightened by its caretakers, that creates what's known as dissociative episodes where the infant will just go and crawl under a couch or something, like seek a place where it can hide, and basically dissociate completely in groups of people or in frightening new situations. People who grew up in abusive situations very often just leave their bodies entirely. Traumas people being raped or in accidents or violent episodes, this is a result, can be resultant too. Uh, some of the things that happen if you don't get your emotional needs met early on and continually in childhood is that we develop what's known as uh, repairing strategies. And there are basically three ways that you try to get the love and uh, soothing and security that we didn't get when we were vulnerable and young. The first is through drugs and alcohol. Ever heard of that? <laughs> Infants that didn't feel at all comfortable expressing anger or rage or uh, frustration often turn to opiates and heroin in their adult life. That's what allows them to deal with the dysregulation and the, the discomfort known in psychology as dysphoria of anger and rage because they were so shunned and so uh, pushed off when they were 
they experienced it as a child, they experienced their anger as so traumatic, they need to immediately regulate it with opiates. On the other hand, some children who feel completely emotionally dead, perhaps because they grew up with narcissistic parents, often turn towards stimulants, speed or cocaine, etc., crystal meth. So we turn towards drugs that provide us with a very emotional regulation that we didn't receive when we were children. That determines the drug of choice and of of addicts. Another hallmark of not getting needs met is substitute relationships. Basically, going through a lot of empty sexual partnerships uh, that are not providing any intimacy, that are just providing a substitute feeling of being loved for short term, but when any emotions are expressed, they're not met at all. Often we're reduplicating our childhood if we fall into that pattern. And finally, one of the most common of people who grow up in insecure families where they had to perform for love is they uh, can be very desperately people-pleasing, seeking approval, achievement. Look at me. I started my own company. Look at me. I'm making six figures. Look at me. I wrote a book. Look at me. Look, look, please, please, please look at me. <laughs> and in such cases, the, the quality of, of relationships is completely sacrificed and replaced with quantity. People who are desperate to have uh, thousands of Facebook friends. And by the way, in case you haven't guessed it by now, Facebook and texting are perhaps the most damaging things that people could fall into if they believe it's giving them true, lasting, intimate relationships, because it doesn't at all. None of the needs that we require, and believe me, Facebook is great. It's great for promotion and stuff like that, but it doesn't replace core, intimate, mirrored relationships You can't trick the right hemisphere. It knows when it's receiving, uh, it's being met, it's being mirrored, it's being, uh, it's receiving, uh, it's being witnessed by others. So, uh, fortunately, the mind is not a sealed device. And part of the Buddha's practice was creating the tools available not just for us to develop internal practice, which is necessary to develop sustained attention, but also to allow us to develop the tools to be emotionally supported and integrated with other people so that we can feel met. The Buddha said, when he was asked what were the conditions of achieving uh, the path, he talked very frequently about the need for wise people in our lives. And wise people or wise companions were the Buddha's code words for intimate relationships. 
with other spiritual practitioners or other people that are sympathetic. And he defined it. He said, a wise friend gives what is hard to give, does what is hard to do, endures what is hard to endure, reveals their experience when it's appropriate, and keeps your secrets when you share them. When misfortune strikes, the wise companion doesn't abandon you nor look down on you when you're down and out. She is endowed with these seven qualities that you should be kept in contact with. And he says this again and again and again, particularly in the suttas that he gave towards the end of his life. He made three refuges for us. One was the Buddha and the Sangha, i.e. meditation and the Dharma, but the third was the Sangha, our relationship with each other. This is why the Brahma-viharas of friendliness, compassion, appreciation of other people's happiness, and equanimity are so important because if you look at them from the light of current behavioral therapy and uh, psychology, all of the needs we have emotionally are addressed by those Brahma-viharas. The compassion is the mirroring. The kindness is the witnessing and being seen and being uh, 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 being permitted to uh, emotionally express oneself. The Sangha gives us the membership, the feeling of being part of something. And equanimity gives us the tolerance to have difficult emotions, to be sad, to be frustrated, to not be content or to be just disappointed in life. We need to be able to express these things not only verbally, but also literally express them in our face, in our bodies, the way we communicate with each other. And what we need is somebody not to change or fix us or give us a solution, but simply to hear it and hold it. So, what I'd like you to do is find the person that's sitting closest to you and turn towards them. I know this is scary, but... <laughs> if you don't find a group of two, we can do three. <laughs> Everybody have at least one other person to be with. If you're in a group of three, that's fine. But 
Uh, okay, everybody's got. Okay, great. So what I'm going to do is just going to ask a question and then one person answer it, and the other person just keep, if you can, observing and meeting it and empathizing as much as you can or just holding their gaze. Don't do it in a creepy way. <laughs> I've, done this, I've done this exercise with other uh, Buddhist teachers, and once in a while you just get somebody who's, who's got that psycho killer type. Not blink. I won't name names. Uh, no, nah, I'm kidding. It's, it's all okay. So, uh, so just try to be sympathetic and don't plan what you're going to say if you're the one who's listening. If you're the one who's speaking, just uh, say it and then allow a pause in the answer and then give a new answer. And what I'd like you, I'm going to give a minute for each. So what I'd like you to do is answer the question, uh, what am I emotionally experiencing right now? Do I feel vulnerable? Is this freaky? Uh, do I feel uh, uh, disappointed? Did I, do I feel uh, confused? Do I feel... Just be honest. Don't judge and then pause. If you run out of emotions in the minute after you pause, just talk about any other state that you're aware of. You could say, I'm aware of my stomach being tight. Anything in the front of your body that you're aware of that also constitutes emotion. Uh, awareness of like uh, flushness in the face or uh, a, a heaviness in the body. Anything that you think denotes your emotional state. Just express that. And the other person, don't plan what you're going to say. Just listen. And at the end of the minute, just nod and express gratitude to each other for your, the person speaking, their vulnerability, and for the person who's listening, their empathy and their attuned connection. So um, the question again is, what do I... What am I feeling right now emotionally? And I need each one person from each group to raise their hand, just to be the person who starts. Come on. <laughs> Go with it. And you can feel free to say, I hate the teacher. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to ring the bell to get us started and ring it again to stop it in about a minute or a minute and a half.
you hear the bell, it doesn't mean you have to cut off completely in mid-sentence. So, if you didn't get a chance to bow, just bow so that everybody feels supported. Okay. Now it's the second person's term, and don't worry if you're in a group of three, got it all under control. <laughs> so, num- who's going to be number two in the groups with three people, just so that they know? If oh, everybody, okay, everybody knows. Okay, I'll I'll take it from here. Here we go. expressing something that's happening now that you're experiencing or just anything else that this that you feel about what this brings up anything at all and so <laughs> I knew the troublemaker here was going to what, what was that done did you say, do you have a question? No. No, okay. I've done this. Thank you. 
So for the last section, for the uh, and game shows, what do they call it? The uh, the extra round, the bonus, bonus. the bonus elimination round. Now nobody's eliminated. The extra point round, uh, bonus round for the for all the emotional cookies. Uh, anyway. Just take turns in this final section, just talking about any experience, of course, that you feel comfortable, that you don't feel often comfortable sharing with people. Something that, it could be loneliness, it could be uh, troubles with it, anything, you know, just a, a tendency to, to, that you're concealing. Sometimes it's people express that they want to get their shopping under control. They feel shamed of something. Something about your experience that's in your life, but you don't feel that you'll ever get rewarded by talking with somebody else. And just see if you can get a little bit vulnerable and just open to that. Now, if it's, there's something that's really causing you uh, a lot of difficulty. Don't judge yourself if you can't get there yet. This is work that we can uh, continue in our lives and work towards. But just see if you can open up to expressing some of the feelings or behaviors that you don't get time to. And so we'll start with the first person who shared in each group and then just go back and forth talking about uh, anything that comes to mind until the final bell. Okay?
everybody for um, it's it's actually while it can create a lot of joy it also can be uh, it can be a very uh, experience that requires a lot of uh, courage because we're really not rewarded in this culture to be emotionally vulnerable and to open especially to people that we don't know and when we do it we can begin though to do the most valuable work that is available to us in tandem with meditation where we learn to open and hold all of our experience without pushing it away so that we can integrate the internal energies and drives and states and be able to open to our entire experience with compassion. This is the way we then be able to fulfill and complete the process by literally giving ourselves permission to express and be heard and to hear someone else and to receive them. When we do that, we complete the entire experiential process of this spiritual path. So I'd like to thank all of you. And um, now we have time for any questions or shares on the experience, if you're going to use this time to leave, uh, just to remind you about the donations, because we are uh, financially uh, now even more uh, in need of them. And I thank you for those who are leaving for coming tonight.